Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's episode comes live from the BFI South Bank, where MK3D is back and in person. Coming up in this week's show, we will hear from Prano Bailey Bond, the brilliant director of the new film Censor, Kathy Brady, whose wildfire is currently in UK cinemas. But we start with Harriet Walter, one of the stars of Phyllida Lloyd's powerful drama, Herself. So sit back and enjoy a front row seat for MK3D live at the BFI South Bank. I have to I have to begin by chiding you all because one of the instructions is please ask the audience not to shout out. But it was kind of spontaneous, so it was lovely. Hello, everybody. It's fabulous to see so many of you back here. Um, this is our second MK3D back. The first one was kind of, you know, we had to keep the numbers smaller. So we're kind of building back up again. So lovely to see you all. I should apologise from the beginning. If any of you were here at the last show, I had, a, I had this beautiful tailor-made suit that was tailor-made for me, and, uh, and it looked really rocking and great, and uh, I think that's it. And then I hung it in my cupboard over lockdown, and I don't understand how, but it shrank. <laughs> it's like literally half the size that it was, and so uh, you know, I had to rush out, and so nothing says class like Marks and Spencer's washable. But I'm worried that there's a label on this that I haven't removed. So if at some point somebody realises it, would you just shout out? Because I, you know. Uh, so the other thing is, did I take my mask off? I did. Yes, I went down there. Um, we're going to do audience questions, but we have to do it. This is probably the last time we'll have to do these. Um, as we said, for people to tweet them in, because we're not allowed to pass the microphone around. But hopefully by the time we're all back uh, in a month's time, that will all have changed and we'll get back to the usual anarchy of anybody just you know, yelling out anything they fancy. So that'll be fine. Anyway, lovely to see you all here. We have a fabulous show for you. Let me start with... These were, these were things that came in on Twitter. I don't know whether the people that sent them in are here or not. So Sam Skempton here. And again, I feel like I should tell you off, but it just feels weird. Thank you, Sam. Was it, this is lovely, this is actually a bit of a gift. Was the extreme cinema strand something you pitched to Channel 4 for yourself? Or did you, and did you ever meet any resistance to certain films being shown? So the reason that I chose this is a lovely question, thank you very much. For those of you old enough to remember, I used to introduce a season on, on Film 4, it was Channel 4 and then Film 4, which was called Mark Kermode's Extreme Cinema. And it was all stuff, it was like, you know, 
gore and filth and stuff that we'd had to sort of run around with the sensors to get the right. By the time I finished it, I was kind of quite old, and I did suggest that we did Mark Kermode's mild cinema, but nobody picked that up. Um, but Nick is entirely responsible for it happening. Nick, who's always here doing all the clips and everything. Nick is... Have you got a microphone? Yes. You've got a microphone, fine. Nick, answer the question about did I pitch extreme cinema to you? Because I don't think I did. Well, I think what happened was that we had a lot of... We, one of the things we wanted to do with the channel when it started was uh, show films that were pushing the boundaries, really. Filth. Filth, yeah. exactly. And uh, you and I had met and worked together at BBC uh, on making a, a documentary about The Exorcist. I think we made the definitive Exorcist documentary, possibly, 1998, Fear of God. Still available on BBC iPlayer in the longest possible form. <laughs> Thank you. Check it out. It's free. It's fabulous. And then I went to... Channel 4 to work with um, the Film 4 channel to be the head of programming for Film 4 channel, basically. And we wanted to show extreme films, so I thought... You said, better? I'm not working here unless we get Kermode on board. <laughs> exactly. In fact, actually, what happened was I left... I mean, again, if you're older, I used to work at Radio 1, and I left Radio 1 because by that point I was twice the age of the average audience. And I always had this thing about find the, the door before they show it to you. But I was only able to leave because I said to Nick, you have to, you have to offer me work. And so Nick offered me work so I could leave Radio 1. Simon Mayo still refers to those two years between me leaving Radio 1 and then picking up again with him on Radio 5 as my wilderness years. <laughs> Actually, it was fabulous. We did loads of loads of stuff. We, we, I mean, we had a fantastic slate of films. On the subject, if we ever had any resistance to anything, the biggest problem we ever had was showing the documentary that we made about the devils, because Warner Brothers hate the devils, and they hated the... We found all the missing scenes, and we went through so many loops to show that stuff. But we showed... I mean, when we began, there was loads of stuff that was censored and cut. By the time we ended, I think in the last six months, we showed the uncut Evil Dead, the uncut Zombie Flesh Eaters, um, the uncut Cruising, and the uncut Taxi Zomclow. And I remember Adam, who was kind of the technicals guy, ring up and saying, I don't think there's anything left to show. I think we've shown all the filth that exists in the world. And that was when it kind of came to an end. But I do owe my entire career to Nick. So a round of applause for Nick for giving me a job. Right, this is from Noah Keat. Noah? Okay. Noah was quiet. With Andrea Arnold's Cow and Chloe Bonnard's or, uh, uh, Ali and Ava both premiering at Cannes, what are your favourite films from those respective directors? I, I think uh, Andrea Arnold's best film is uh, American Honey, which I love. Clio Barnard's film, Selfish Giant, is brilliant. And I wanted to show you a clip, but we can't find it. But it's, there was a lovely clip the year that Selfish Giant came out. Selfish Giant was up in the BAFTAs. It was up for Best British Film against Gravity. And Gravity, of course, was a really sort of big budget film. It technically really wasn't British. But they made this lovely viral video. If you've seen Selfish Giant, it's the two kids, you know, getting the scrap iron and taking it places on a horse-drawn truck. And somebody took that and they took the spaceship from gravity and stuck it on the back of the truck. And they had the two kids leaving the truck off. If we could find the clip, I would have shown it to you. But just imagine it. It's every bit as funny as I just described it. Should have shown the clip. And finally, this from Sophie Bain. Is Sophie here? Okay, fine. Makes it a lot easier. If Jaws isn't about a shark, what is it actually about? And... See, this goes round and round and round and round and round. I'll do this once and I'll be quick about it. And then I'm going to show you a clip for just self-indulgent purposes. It's not from Jaws, incidentally. Okay, here's the thing. 
the book of Jaws is not about a shark. The book of Jaws is about infidelity. Because the whole plot of Jaws happens because Brody's wife has an affair with Matt Hooper. And then Matt Hooper ends up getting eaten by the shark because she has an affair with Brody's, because he has an affair with Brody's wife. In the film, they took out the affair with Brody's wife, therefore Matt Hooper can't die because there's no logical, you know, moralistic reason for it. And that's why that bit in Jaws, when, you know, Richard Dreyfus, when he says, you know, you go in the cage, cage goes in the water, shark's in the water, our shark, and then he starts singing. He goes in the water, shark gets him, shark clearly eats Richard Dreyfus. Then Roy Scheider does battle with the shark, blows it up, and at the end, Matt Hooper pops up and goes, well, that was a close one, and the reason he can't die is because he didn't have an affair with Brody's wife. That's what it's about. Yeah? Good. Fine. So since we were all last together, Nancy Griffith died, and Nancy Griffith is an absolute musical legend. I know this is meant to be a sort of cinema thing, but you're going to indulge me for two minutes, because I had the great pleasure in a former life when I was a lot younger and a lot thinner of playing double bass with Nancy Griffith and I'm going to play you us doing Fordicon Online with Nancy Griffith on the Danny Baker TV show from the 1990s uh, partly because it's self-aggrandizing because I look fabulous but partly because it's the great Nancy Griffith and this is wonderful so just indulge me in memory of the great Nancy Griffith here is her on Danny Baker after all. Now she drove away from Salt Lake City To the California coastline She hit the San Diego freeway Doing 60 miles an hour She had a husband on her bumper She had five restless children And she was singing as sweet as a monkey And birding at 40 gone Isn't that the coolest thing you've ever seen? And she was, so fa she was so fab. I mean, she was this huge star, and we were all sort of totally in awe of her. And the way I met her when we were doing that is we were sound checking, because um, she'd only come in for, like, for, the, for the afternoon to the evening performance. And we were sound checking, and we were playing an old song called Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down, which kind of everybody knows, because it's like a 12-bar thing. And we were playing it, and suddenly there were these backing vocals that I'd never heard before. And Nancy Griffith had walked on stage and was singing backing vocals. And I thought, I'm playing in a band and Nancy Griffith is singing backing vocals. I, there, is, there is nothing left for me to achieve in my life. So I was very, anyway, lovely to do it. She was fantastic and she was much missed. So let's move on to our, our first uh, feature of the evening, which is Coming Attractions. There is a film which is out in cinemas on Friday. It's had a strange release. This is the new film by uh, Philida Lloyd. And uh, it was going to be released in the middle of everything that happened over the last 18 months. And then cinemas were closed, and then it couldn't, and then there was a streaming release. But now it's coming to UK cinemas. Uh, it's called Herself. I'm going to show you a clip from it. It's land, Sandra, going to waste. Use it. Build a house for you and your girls. Dr. Why would you do this? Your mother was far more than a cleaner to me. She was a friend. She helped me through some bloody awful times. 
I want to give you the land and lend you the money to build your house. Not as smart. You can't. I can. You can pay me back over as many years as, as we decide. Hmm? What do you say? Is that a yes? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right now, get back to work. Good woman. Please welcome our first guest, Harriet Walter. Harry, it's fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. I know that you have to dash off to other engagements because you're sort of fantastically busy. All lardy frock. <laughs> yeah, what happened was we met in the dressing room and there was a conversation about whether or not I was going to wear a suit and whether or not, therefore, I have to say, you look much more fabulous than I do. Although, actually, we look kind of coordinated. It's the sort of, you know, the, the, the light in the dark. So, tell us a little, I know it's because it's a long time ago now that it was made and all the delays with COVID. So, tell us about herself, which is now getting a cinema release in the UK on Friday. It's a wonderful story, really, because Claire Dunn, who you saw, the younger woman in that clip, was always wanting to write. And so are so many people. And she said, I'm going to write a film script. Now, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so many people say that. She was living in my house, which is a slight parallel to the story in the film because we were working on a theatre project with Fuller de Lloyd. Um, we were, we'd formed, um, sort of over five years, we'd formed an all-female Shakespeare company, which did three plays set, um, set in a fictitious women's prison, in which I played Brutus and Claire played Portia, my wife, and then I played King Henry IV and she played Prince Hal, so I played her husband and her father and then, and for going, because we'd done so much collaborating and worked so well together, I suppose that's why I got invited to do this film. But, so she's staying in my house and going on, and we're talking at two in the morning after finishing the work on stage, and she's buzzing with her ideas. But basically, she had a friend who was suddenly rendered homeless in Ireland um, with two children, and... Um, she could have been any of us. She could have been Claire. She could have been a number of people. And it was suddenly this sort of, there aren't the homeless people and us. It was suddenly, the bridge suddenly was built between the two. And she suddenly thought, she was sort of dreaming like you do in bed. And she thought, how about if somebody built their own house? And she Googled house building for cheap. And she found this guy who, um, helps people build houses for a really 25 grand, you know, really sort of an easy amount of money for some people to get. And so she created this story of a woman who's in an abusive relationship and needs to shelter her children and is the cleaning lady to me. And um, for my own reasons, I decide to help her out and give her the land. And as you saw in the clip, you know, I'm not doing some wonderful act of you know, I'm not embarrassing her with too much generosity. I'm saying she can pay it back. And the whole story is about her 
about this young woman managing to get her life together with the help of a number of good-hearted, well-meaning people. Um, and the idea of the title herself is very much about sort of taking over agency of your life and not depending on institutions which are hell-bent to not help you. Yeah. Um, and it's very accurately researched and, and, and um, worked out. And it was just miraculous to have this woman writing a film in my attic um, and then, you know, oh, I think I'll show it to Philida because she happened to be the director who was near at hand. And Philida's saying, I think this is wonderful. And Philida showing it to various other people. And because it was Philida, the money came in. And, da -da 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 -da. and then we're at Sundance. Just in case anyone doesn't know, Philida Lloyd also made Mamma Mia and The Iron Lady, both of which did pretty well, as far as I remember. So. <laughs> and are nothing like this film. So, you know, but it was just so, you know, her vers versatility is, is, is abundant. But... I think that was just a wonderful sort of trajectory because, you know, she dreamed a dream and it came true. I mean, you've got to have the right people around, to sort of, but you've also got to have the talent that attracts the right people. Yeah. And the parable in the story is how you can attract people into your life who will help you and not to give in to some sort of victim status. And um, that, that we, we'd been working in women's prisons and a number of women had sort of, you know, a huge percentage of women in prison are, come from abusive relationships. And so there was a lot of first-hand stuff on our doorstep that fed into the film. Yeah. And, and then suddenly we're at Sundance and suddenly it's all happening and great reviews. And, and this is January 2020. This is January 2020. And we'd only filmed it in April 2019 and she'd finished writing it, you know, six months before that and I mean it's not usually this speedy is it getting a film on no, the no. ground but it was wonderful and then COVID struck just when we were going to go into picture houses and you know now we're picking up where it left off and um, it's still not dated um, sadly. <laughs> How much does it matter to you that it's in cinemas because the interesting thing is that you know obviously it opened before anybody had any idea what I mean I think it's it's really strange that in the 18 months, we've all got used to this. Cinemas closed, like everything closed. I didn't go to the cinema for over a year. In my entire life, that's never happened. So how important is it that the film is now playing in cinemas? Well, for me, it's like, in a way, I could say it's a sort of backhanded advantage that we've had COVID because I think it's made people realize how much they miss the big, the big screen yeah. and being in a dark room and just being submerged into a story rather than watching it on your, um, you know, your iPhone or your iPad or, you know, we've done so much of that that in a way maybe people are going to go, God, what I really love is to go to a cinema and watch it in big, yeah. you know, because it is such a different experience. It's immersive. It's, it's uninterrupted. It's, um, it just completely picks you up and takes you into another world. Whereas when you're watching it on your device, you've still got the kitchen around and the, you know, your friend walks in and you want to go to the loo. And it's just, it's not immersive in the same way. Have you been back to the cinema to see anything since, since restrictions have lifted? Yes, I have. What have I seen? Um, I saw, um, what's the Matt Damon film that's just come out? Oh, uh, Clearwater. Clearwater. Which Stillwater. Stillwater, which I haven't seen yet because it's, it's been at festivals, but I haven't seen it here yet. I saw Stillwater and I saw um, Black Widow, strangely enough, which, you know, is not my answer to f female um, levelling up. <laughs> but, you know, um, and 
they break as many boats. Women are equal in their ferocity. They can kill as many people and do as many somersaults and, you know, what the fuck. Anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so That's tomorrow's like, headline, incidentally. <laughs> what the fuck? Yes, <laughs> But, um, and, and um, yeah, no, I mean, I've seen, uh, that's probably all, though. And I, I've been now to two plays, which yeah. was sort of my life was going to the theatre. What's it like back in the theatre? Is the theatre playing to capacity now, or is it still...? Pretty much in a slightly spread out way. I mean, you sort of breathe. I went to the Olivier the other day, and it, was, it felt like a huge arena full of people. It felt like a crowd, yeah. maybe because we haven't been in crowds for a while. But, um, yeah. I think people are liking being together in, a, in the same space. We've had the opposite for so long. It's like a coiled spring. We're kind of longing to, to jump out. Um, I want to jump from that to, because you were talking about streaming and because you're talking about theatre, and I heard, I've just recently been talking to Brian Cox, who's got a book coming out, his autobiography. And, um, and Brian Cox tells this wonderful story in his autobiography about the, the best time he ever had in the theatre. He went to see a play, and there was two uh, women sitting next to him. And he said the play started, and one of them, bang, fell asleep. <laughs> snored all the way through until the, the, the interval, when she woke up, applauded loudly, and said, Dorothy, let's get a drink. And when he got a drink, came back, curtain went down, bang, fast asleep. <laughs> curtain went up at the end, she woke up, and she went, Dorothy, that's what I call a great afternoon in the theatre. And Brian Cox said, that was it. That was like the best experience he'd ever had. <laughs> But you and Brian Cox, of course, are involved in the, you know, the runaway streaming hit, which is Succession. Can I show a quick clip from Succession? And then, I'm sorry, Nick, I'm jumping around in the order, of, but I know that you're more than adept <laughs> enough to do that. So, shall I be mother? Yeah, why don't you give it a go? Huh? <laughs> yes, well, I'm sorry, it's not a 48-ounce T-bone steak with truffle fries, but... There we go. Some of us don't want coronary heart attacks. It's nice, Ma. It's nice. There's quite a lot of shot in the pigeon, so mind how you go. You'll crack a tooth. And the shot can take a bit of feather in, too. Hmm. Shot and feather. Shall we begin with the negotiations straight away? <laughs> First time I've had you in from the night in a decade. It's just a shame. It's so you can put the squeeze on me for your father. Ma, it's not like that. No? No. Tell me, what does it feel like being sent here to wheedle out your mother. <laughs> Don't look at me. I'm not getting involved. She's right. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A bit of solidarity. 20 years too late, but never mind. Someone's taking Mummy's side. I mean, if, if you want to get into it, you're just posturing, right? If you go with Sandy and Stewie, you're burning down the Colosseum with your children inside it. I've thought about it. <laughs> So, you know, people talk about this in, I mean, in terms of Shakespeare, in terms of Lear and everything. What's, what's it been like working on it? Well, I come in, uh, I mean, I'm sort of part audience, part employee. I mean, I, I sort of know about it about as much as you do a lot of the time because I watch eight episodes and then I jump in and go, there's me in <laughs> episode nine and ten, you know. So I often don't know what's happened up to then, uh, which is kind of, I've put that to my advantage and said, well, nor does she. She doesn't know what's going on in yeah, her yeah. family. And, um, sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, and it, it's been extraordinary because that the first time I went in, everyone was in the, I, I met everybody because it was a wedding scene. So you met, everyone was in staying in a hotel in Wales and you met everybody and you got to know everybody and started to bond. So that scene, which was like a year later and only had my two children in it, 
that was fine because I'd already bonded. Do you know what I mean? And then this year we'd done season three and it was another wedding. And so we had the whole family in again. And I reckon they only really want me when the Americans want to come to Europe. <laughs> Which is great because as long as they want to go and come to Europe, I'll be in the show. Because we, we went to Tuscany this year. I mean, you know, tough life. Um, and... Um, and I often don't know what's happening. I make up my backstory. I wrote to the showrunner, Jesse Armstrong, and said, look, I've done a number of interviews about this part, so I'm making stuff up because I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, this is what I've been saying about my character. Is that okay? <laughs> and sent it in. He said, fine, you know, I'm basing it on so-and-so. Yeah, great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> is it fun to do? Oh, bliss, bliss, because it's funny, it's, it's glamorous, but it's got something deeper and darker in it, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's a, a great combination, because it is a bit Shakespeare, it really is. Um, otherwise, why would we give a shit about these people? You know, there's something we do, it is King Lear, and everybody's trying to, to get their father's love, you know, and even though it's on a massive scale, and he's a monster, and he's bred some monsters, with my help, um, <laughs> you know, even though that's the case, you still somehow feel compassion for them. Yeah. That's a great gift. I mean, uh, I don't know how he manages it, but there is some kind of genius at work there. So herself in cinemas on Friday, we have the new season of uh, Succession coming up, and you also have a film that's in Venice. Yes, and it will be out here on October the 1st, I think, which, which is? is the last duel, which is Ridley Scott's latest thing. You cannot imagine this man. He's early 80s, but he's in his 80s, and he's got three films coming out. I mean, he just never, ever stops. It's extraordinary. And his, his sort of, um, his range is, he goes from completely different worlds, you know, whether they're out of space or the American West or, you know, in this case, medieval France. You know, I mean, he somehow creates, he's got, I mean, he's just a cinematic genius. And how, do you, how did you find him as a, as a director? Because one of the interests, I've interviewed Ridley a lot of, Sir Ridley, pardon me, many times. Does he do, does he ask for the Sir? No, fine. <laughs> Rids. Rids. Ridley baby, yeah. Ridders. Yeah. So I've interviewed him many times over, over the years. And at the beginning, the, the, the criticism was always, he's not an actor's director, he's a, you know, he's a director director. But actually, and we're going to talk about um, something in connection with this in a moment, I think during the course of his career, he has he has aired more on the side of being an actor's director because, you know, he obviously he can create worlds, like you say, outer space, whatever it is. But I think that he has moved more and more to be, towards becoming somebody who isn't what you'd call an actor's director. Right. I mean, it, 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 you become very adaptable as an actor because, you, you know, particularly in the cinema, you don't tend to work with the same people very often. So yeah. you're suddenly jumping up and you're... Phila Lloyd is all about collaboration, all about character creation. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different requirement for that film. For, for Ridley, I felt he's like this conductor and I'm this instrument and I'm playing in this orchestra, but I will always be playing the oboe but he will put the oboe right, he'll lace it through in the right way, and I've just got to sit back and play the oboe. Do you know, and he's got to, he, you know, just over to you, Ridders, you know, because, because it's just, I mean, we did have conversations about character. We didn't see particularly eye to eye because I was playing an older woman, and that's always a bit, you know, 
I have a, a rather fierce guardianship of, of the older woman and how, it, how she's viewed objectively by the male world. So I had a few moments when I was sort of defending my territory. But I also completely trusted him to place me in the right place and, and, and get the story across. And When you say fierce guardianship, how do you do... Do you, do you row? Do you I don't do it fiercely. Okay. <laughs> I do it wimpily. I kind of go, sorry, excuse me, what with me? <laughs> and does, the, does, that tend to, does that tend to win the day? Depends. If my argument's good, it, it, it works, you know. And, and some of the time I think it, someone's just saying, yeah, shut her up, shut her up, shut her up, just say yes. Um, but, but no, I think he does respect that you're the guardian of your character and he's the guardian of something else. And, you know, um, I think maybe you're right. Maybe he's learned from the way actors work, that he's learned more about how we work. Um, and I would rather be allowed to get on with my work right. with, a, with a director who knows how to tell a story in pictures than, than somebody who's trying to get into my head and be all psychological and doesn't know how to make a film. Yeah. Phil and Deloitte was on the, the Radio 5 show I do with Simon Mayer. It's quite popular. Um, uh, on Friday. And she was talking about making herself... Making herself... Sorry. It's one of those titles. It doesn't matter how you use it in a sentence. It always, she was talking about herself. And it did sound to me like it had been a thoroughly uh, communal experience. Like everybody... You know, everybody had been engaged, everybody, you know, it was like you were literally building a house together and everybody just got on with it. So is that unusual? Oh, it depends on the scale and it depends on the budget sometimes. I mean, uh, and the fact that this grew out of a theatre collaboration, I think, made a big difference. Right. Um, and um, the scale of it in Ireland, you know, the very local nature of it, the, the actors were local, the, you know, um, so there was a lot of sort of... Um, built-in collaboration plus they had to learn how to build a house as one because the house does get built it does and the good thing about being an old director is That's you don't have to build spot. the house you know you can just watch other people build the house and bring them cups of tea so, was great. Um, so they were doing all the heavy lifting and literally you'd come around the corner on the next day and you'd see a bit a wall had gone up or a door had gone up and a, you know yeah um and they, they went on courses to learn how to build and all that sort of stuff, you know, which perhaps in a bigger budget you'd have, you know, that would be all done for you by, by the heavy guys and you'd just come on and pretend you'd done it. Um, so there was something really gritty about the making yeah. of it. I asked you to choose a, a guilty pleasure um, movie and you chose something which is brilliant, but I, not very guilty. What was your guilty pleasure? Well, it was Thelma and Louise. And I, I don't know, I mean, it was subconscious, but I, of course, see, of course, the Ridley connection, the, 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 the abusive husband connection. So it's sort of in my, it's what's going on in my head at the moment. But it's also that it hasn't really, it hasn't aged. At all. At all. And kind of sadly, the subject matter hasn't aged. But... Um, yeah. But it's as it's as it's as brilliant an expression of female triumph as I can think of, even though they triumph by ending their lives. But you know, it, it, it's I think we all love a bit of lawlessness, don't we? It's a fantasy. That's what's guilty about yeah. it. We've got a couple of clips. Let's show one just before we talk about it a bit more. This is from very early on when the shooting has happened in the you know in the in the car park, and this is. Thelma and Louise dashing away from the scene of the crime for the first time realising just what's happened. Louise? 
I don't know. I don't know. Just shut up so I can think. Shouldn't we uh, go to the cons? I mean, I think we ought to tell the police. Tell them what, Thelma? Just what do you think we should tell them, huh? I what? don't know. Just tell them what happened. Which part? All of it. That, that, that he was raping me. Just about 100 goddamn people saw you dancing cheek to cheek with him all night. Who's going to believe that? We don't live in that kind of a world, Thelma. God damn it, pull over. The thing that's great about that scene, well, two things. Firstly, it's a conversation scene, but of course it's a Ridley Scott movie, therefore it looks brilliant because it's the night and the thing, but it's from the Callie Curry script when she says, we don't live in that kind of a world, world Thelma, is the sort of central line of the drama. And I remember watching Thelma and Louise for the first time, not knowing what the, what the story arc was. And it starts out really dark. And as you said, it has a dark thread all the way through, but it's kind of, it's front-loaded with really tough stuff. And then it becomes a kind of escapist yeah. fantasy movie almost you kind of want them to to succeed even yep. though they've killed people because um you know they've done it with such good hearts and you know, for all the right reasons you know but also you know you do, I love the idea of killing people for all well, the right I reasons love it. I, you know, i'm sorry i just gotta kill you but so there's an element that's what i meant by the guilty pleasure yeah. is that there's an element of fantasy about it except it's not treated in a very fantastical way in some ways because you know, you do, you're not shortchanged um, on the sort of psychological reactions of these women. And the way that the power balance changes between them, where you've got Susan Sarandon, who's really sort of, she's experienced, that line comes out of her own experience, we later learn. And, um, and, and, and you know, Thelma's complete, you know, we're, we're led to think sort of Daffy. And then Thelma becomes the rich. She says, I think I'm getting quite good at this. She's sort of bank robbing and, you know, killing people left, right, and so on. But, you know, it, it's got a sort of logic to it. It's got a terrible logic to it, um, which is still a logic that's going on today, which, you know, it's not saying I'm advocating, you know, kill rapists. But, you know, if you happen to have a gun in your glove compartment, I can see why it happens. <laughs> can, can you remember when you first saw Thelma and Louise? Yeah, I thought I saw it at the time when it was in a, released in 1990. What not? In a, in a cinema in or a cinema. at a fine. Yeah, so. I didn't know any other way to watch a film. And how did it play with the audience? It was a really runaway hit, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, yes, it was, but it was also kind of it, it was, was a run shocking. Yeah, yeah, it was shocking. Um, and then, of course, it was sort of mitigated by Brad Pitt being extremely yummy and nobody had ever seen him before that was the first time we ever saw brad pitt wasn't it well he was he had made a film called uh, johnny suede which hadn't yet been released you would know that no no it's, yeah because he's got a quiff in it and i interviewed the thing you know so sorry let's, let's not start on brad's hair but in fact look, that leads us very nicely the second clip i want to show is the clip in the diner the morning after Gina Davis has enjoyed the company of brad pitt who you quite rightly say people hadn't seen before at that point but was at his most Brad Pitt. So this is them in the diner the morning after. Uh, what happened to your hair? Nothing. Got messed up. Thelma, what's wrong with you? Nothing. Why? Do I seem different? Well, now you mention it, yeah, you, you seem like you're crazy or you're on drugs. Well, I'm not on drugs. I might be crazy. <laughs> Tell me what happened. <laughs> what happened? 
Jake just came back. Oh my God, Louise. Oh, oh no. I can't believe it. I mean, I just can't believe it. No! Oh my God, it's like. <laughs> I finally understand what all the fuss is about now. It's just like a whole nother ball. Oh, darling, I'm so happy for you. That's great. I really am. You finally got laid properly. This That's so sweet. <laughs> oh. Where is it now? Oh, he's taking a shower. Tell me you left him alone in the room. Where's the money? Oh my God, Thelma, where's the money? It's on the bed table. It's okay. I mean, they are brilliant performances, aren't they? Don't you? F it's like they are having that conversation for the first Absolutely time. Absolutely. I think maybe that was, as an actor, that was what really thrilled me about it, was the complexity of the, those two women. And um, there was something so powerful about them and the fact that they were allowed to play slightly, well, she, Selma played a bit dumb, but wasn't. You know, she'd been inbred to be to think she was dumb and had never had a good lay, and you know all that stuff, which is totally believable. And then the way they trod that line yeah. right through to the end um, and kept their relationship going, I thought it was brilliant. Did you talk to Ridders about it? Did you say? I didn't actually. I didn't talk to Ridders about it. I talked to him about the Getty film because I thought that was very good, and, yeah. and I, in my deepest, darkest childhood, I used to know Paul Getty. And I presented him with a, a photograph of me, age 10, with Paul Getty. You've had the most unbelievable life. I know, how have I fitted all the work in? Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, that's true. So, you know, it's theatre, television, cinema, knowing. <laughs> uh, how, do you ju are you a workaholic? Yeah, yeah. You just work all the time? Yeah, if you, uh, uh, yes. Pretty much. If people ask me to do a job and it's a nice idea, I'll do it. I don't do anything. I just usually get asked to do good things. Can I bring our conversation to an end with a little clip from Rocket Man? It's, I know it's only a little clip. It's kind of, but I love Rocket Man. I just, you know, I'm a musicals fan anyway. But I love Rocket Man. This is a really lovely scene from Rocket Man, which we just pulled out because we kind of think it's it, it's so indulge us with this. This is this is you know Reg Dwight who would then grow up to be himself um, very, very early on. Okay, we go. Life gives you very few chances, Reggie, and this is one of yours. You show them you can be as good as they are, better. Number one, you can do that, can't you? Yeah, I suppose. Good, go on then. There's a bag of chips in your bus fare home. Reginald Dwight. Yes. Hi. How do you do? Good, thank you. Take your coat off. Did you not bring something to play? I didn't know I had to. I see, well. So, can you show me anything so I can get a sense of where you're up to? Have you stopped? 
That's as far as you go. <laughs> it's such a lovely scene in such a lovely film, which is, you know, how fab to be in it. Uh, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I, I mean, there is, there's so many ways in which we can all enjoy Harriet's work. As I said, herself is in Picture House Cinemas uh, from Friday. Succession is back, is it? In no. November or something like okay. that. Mm. And, uh, and I, are you going to Venice for...? No, I, I'm here and they're there. But, but do, you know, for heaven's sake, see the last deal in a big cinema. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just imperative. And also see herself on a big screen, yeah. because it's, you know, it's a film that actually really sure. does benefit being projected. Thank you very thank much. You. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you to Harry Walker. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So one of the things that happened during all of this business is that a bunch of films that we were all expecting to see in the sort of fairly near future got pushed back. Bond is now finally opening. But see, this, this says Bond October 2021. Not October. Bond actually now, apparently, allegedly, opening end of September. So you remember it was being pushed back. Is it pushed back four times and forward once? It was the whole thing that was going to happen. Danny Boyle was directing. Then there was the John Hodge, Danny Boyle thing. That all went away. Then they pushed it back. Then COVID happened. Then it was going to open. It was going to save British cinema. Then it didn't. Then it was going to open again, save British cinema again. Then it didn't. Anyway, so now it is finally coming. Meanwhile, there's a couple of Tom Cruise vehicles, which were meant to be uh, 20... I mean, look at that. Top Gun 2020 is now going to be 2022. And Mission Impossible 7 is going to be 2022. However, one of the films that is going to open is Dune. Or, as they always say in the, in the original American, it's Dune. Dune. And this is the Denis Villeneuve, long-awaited Denis Villeneuve adaptation of a frankly unfilmable book. And we know that it's unfilmable because David Lynch had a go at it before. <laughs> And, um, you know, it's, I don't know, for those of you old enough to remember, the David Lynch Dune, it's a really, it was a weird event because essentially David Lynch made it because he wanted to make Blue Velvet. You know, it's almost as if we've planned this show because that's going to land later. It's like thought went into this. It's bizarre. Um, 
He made it because the De Laurentiis organization said, look, if you do this, then you can get to make Blue Velvet, which is the film that you really want to make. And if you were a sort of, you know, kid and a sci-fi fan, you ended up reading Dune and thinking, wow, this would make a great film, except it would have to be like, you know, really, really long. So Lynch made Dune, and it was, I think, we can say, you know, with no, a, a disaster, an unbelievable failure. However, like all great failures, a failure with some moments that will live in my mind forever. So as a little taster for the Denis Villeneuve, which I've got very high expectations of, I'm going to play you what I think is my favourite scene from David Lynch's batshit crazy <laughs> adaptation of Dune. This is Sting, coming out of a steam shower with a pair of wings on his testicles. Ladies and gentlemen, David Lynch's Dune. these people enough, I'll send you fate. Lovely fate. Where's my doctor? The marvelous acting talents of Sting. I, I, honestly, I genuinely wonder how David Lynch, because David Lynch, people who've worked with David Lynch always say that, you know, he's, he's strange to be directed by, but I really wonder how he directed Sting. Uh, Sting, I'd like you to open your eyes really wide. Like, can you wider? Just even, even wider than that. Just stand there. That's right. Just stand there with the steam and your eyes open really, really wide. <laughs> Anyway, the Denis Villeneuve version may be completely different. Um, it does, of course, star Timothée Chalamet. And so, you know, we'll wait and see what happens with that. In the meantime, um, another film which is just opened in UK cinemas, which I reviewed last Friday, because it just came out on Friday. It's a really, really interesting, intense, provoking, moving drama called Wildfire. I'm going to show you a... Look, did we sort the ratio issue? We fine. Okay. This is a trailer for Wildfire, um, which is a film I really like. Have a look at this. I hear your sister's back. She came home herself. Where was she? Where did the police find her? Is she okay? Lauren. Your face looks familiar. Are you from around here? Yeah. I probably know your mommy. What's her name? Anna Cassidy. Oh my god, Anna Cassidy, was she your mommy? Car crash, wasn't it? Had a wall. She's every rule your mother got. She's away with the fairy. Just shut up! Oh, Lauren! Lauren! Please welcome the woman who made Wildfire, Kathy Brady. So I saw Wildfire just last week because it's, you know, it finally opened last week. But of course, you made it quite a long time ago. And it has a, two brilliant central performances. One by Nika McGuigan, who very, very sadly passed away very shortly after the film 
was finished. And I wonder how much that affected anything else, because she's so vibrant on screen. Yeah. You want to say anything about that? I mean, I, I feel like finishing the film ha um, has been the, 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 the biggest, most monumental challenge of my life. Um, but we poured so much uh, blood, sweat and tears and laughter into that film. Yeah. You know, it was five years in the making. The, the film, I cast them first before I had even an idea. So it was the whole world and the story was built with them. And, you know, to actually make the film and to make it on our own terms, um, we knew we had something special yeah. when, when we shot it. And then uh, we hadn't even picture locked the film and it was, Nico got sick and it was in five weeks um, she had died. So uh, to go back into the edit was absolutely heartbreaking. Sure. And I, in many ways, it felt like a very long goodbye to Nika. But I think when anyone who sees this film, she shines so incredibly brightly yeah. that she gives everything in this performance. And it makes sense why I had to go and why I had to finish the film. Yeah. You know, in many, many ways, there was very strange twists of fate that helped us finish the film. I know Nika so well that, like for example, like when you're making a film, sometimes you might change a line of dialogue and you might write an Edior strap on the screen. And because I knew Nika, I, instead of just putting text on the screen, I would just call her and I'd say, listen, will you just record this line on your phone and just send it to me as a voice note? So we had all the Edior covered. Wow. So there was very strange moments like that. And we had, for example, we had two days pickups, which we had to do. And, you know, Nika was very much part of that. And then she was taken so quickly that, you know, the pickup still needs to be done. And Nora Jane, who played her co-lead, was heavily pregnant. So we had this very small window yeah. where she had died, but we had to go back in onto set. Um, and, you know, there, were, there was moments like that, like where Nika's um, co-star from a TV series stepped in and literally wore her costume and finished the role for wow. her. So it was like, it was like an Irish wake in many ways. That, yeah. You know, we all got to have that extra bit of time with her. And um, I think she leaves such an incredible legacy with this film. And it's, it's, it's tragic because in many ways, you know, a performance like this would have launched a career. Absolutely. For those who haven't seen, as I said, it's in cinemas now. The story is about two sisters reunited. And of course, it's about division. And it's set in a divided country. And it does that thing about beautifully, I think, marrying the personal and the political. Where does the story come from? Well, as I said, you know, we, I had the cast and before I had an idea. So having worked with the two actors separately before, I was drawn to, right, I know their capabilities of being incredibly fierce and courageously vulnerable. So how do we tell a story starting there? And I had said to the two of them, I said, have you seen this documentary, Madness in the Fast Lane? I showed them the footage, and in the footage you see these twin sisters walking along the middle of the M6, and they throw themselves onto oncoming traffic and survive with remarkable fury, and it's staggering to watch. We watched the clip together, and I think we were so shook. We were like, how, how do we... How, why would you do that? And the way the film was this, it was an experiment to that moment. Um, so we began research. Uh, we spoke to psychiatrists, psychologists. We even spoke to two sisters who had a shared psychosis. So we started building fact and fiction hand in hand. And the, the story really took root when I brought it back to Borderland, Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. where I'm from. And you know, we were making this film before Brexit was even a word. And I, at one stage, I was thinking... Those, those halcyon days before any of us heard that word. <laughs> you know, and I was thinking, God, is, is the border going to even be relevant? Yet, you know, I had no idea what was coming. 
And even as we were making the film, even as we were shooting the film and in the edit, we were like, what happens when Kelly crosses the border? Yeah. Should it be a hard border? Should it be a soft border? And in many ways, that, that the answer to that question isn't definitive just yet. And the film's been released. Yeah. It's, it's indefinitive just yet. It's like, it's like they haven't even sorted it out now. It's like they didn't even think about it in advance. But obviously that's not true, because obviously they all sat down and thought very hard about it before getting us into this fucking disaster. Anyway, um, I'd like to show a clip from the film. It's the scene in the bar when one of the things that's happened is, you know, they're haunted by what's happened with their mother. But as they're together, they kind of almost regress into their own childhood. Do you want to say something to set this scene up of what we're about to see? I think you, that was perfect. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Mark Kermode, film critic, ladies and gentlemen. Here's the clip. Can I buy you ladies a drink each? Yeah. You want something stronger? No. Sure? Yeah. He's twins. <laughs> no. <laughs> Guess who's older, me or her? Mm. Bet you're older the size of that belly on you. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hold on. That's all muscle, love. Here, muscle man. See if you can do this. Watch. Oh, my legs. Yeah! <laughs> Can't be doing that in here, girl. <laughs> Why not? What are you doing? Cut it out or get out. Sure, they've done far worse and you still serve them. <laughs> yes, far worse. You should go on now, girls. We're not going anywhere. We haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> Someone shut that fucking hang up. <laughs> you don't know who you're dealing with, wee girl. Yeah, I do. 12th of July, 92. Busy day for you, wasn't it, Jerry? My man told me what you did. Our dad was one of the 26-year bomb killed. She doesn't even remember him. And you look at early release to keep the peace. He might be a free man, Jerry, but you're still a murderer. Alma! 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 You don't scare me, mess up. What are you gonna do, huh? What are you gonna do, huh? Get the fuckers out of here, now! That's it, girls. Bye-bye. Get the fuck! Bye-bye, girls. What's so great about that scene is the way it ch the tone of it changes, and it it's really and it's a really beautiful balancing act because so much of the film is about duality. Mm. Tell me about getting that balance right because if you misjudge that, it would go horribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I think a lot of this film is also about the unspoken, and it's about repression of truth, <laughs> repression of feelings. So, I, the idea was to just bring as much as you can to the boiling point. And it, yeah, it definitely was a very fine line to walk. But I think, you know, having come from Borderland, Northern Ireland, a place I think is pathologically secretive because the truth is dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I remember being a kid saying, be careful when you say your full name. Be careful when you say what school you go to because people will figure out if you're Catholic or yeah. Protestant. So that trickles into the everyday. And here you've got these two women who, prior to this, they're, they're, they're dancing like hardcore yeah, yeah, yeah. in the bar before they, they meet these men. So there's this unleashing of energy, an unleashing of truth. And what's fascinating, I think, about them unleashing the truth, this is, um, the, there is, the idea of justice and redemption isn't very clear in this film because life is so much more complicated. Their unleashing is saying, we know you're a murderer, we know you're a free man. And what they're told is to get the hell out. Mm -hmm. 
And, it, you know, maybe sometimes in story, and especially in film, I think we tidy the edges too much where this would be a redemption story, they would get justice. But truth is, life is so much messier. The Good Friday Agreement, seeing prisoners released back into communities, communities where people were maimed or in some cases murdered, and people had to get on for the sake of peace. Yeah. So what did you have to do? You had to bury it. And I think what's fascinating about the, the two leads in Wildfire is they get to speak out and they get to express, and they're not afraid anymore. And I think it's fascinating because um, the female voice has been missing in a lot of Northern Irish, uh, the canon of Northern Irish stories. Yeah. And, and in many ways, a lot of our stories. The other thing about the film is, I, I have no idea what the budget was. I imagine the budget wasn't huge, but it looks fabulous. Tell us about your cinematographer. Well, uh, it was Christelle Fournier who would have worked with Celine Mishama on a lot of her work. And, you know, I was incredibly lucky. She read the script and she was a huge fan. And we spent about six months on Skype. And this is before COVID days, where we talked in depthly about the unspoken. And I, I really loved the idea of working with, you know, someone who was outside of Ireland, an yeah. outside eye. Because she's from? She's from Paris. And I think Crystal has this incredible ability to be intimate with character. And yet she has this poetic ability as well. So it's not just rough and handheld. There's something you can't quite put your finger on. And it was really amazing working with her, you know, in such detail over those six months and really refining it. And we were interested in the idea of this desperate beauty about this place. And again, it's the duality. And, you know, we were trying to figure out a language for this film, you know, so that when the girls really come alive, that we would feel it as an audience, we would feel something really visceral. And um, so we were very selective about when we chose handheld in the film. In fact, it's only two scenes. And the rest of it, it's really, um, it's where the camera sort of gently like comes in on the action. So it was a lot of like steady cam or tracks and this idea of just creeping. And it worked really well with what we end up doing with our sound design because you've got two characters who are in the midst of psychosis. So how do we create a space where our audience can feel really alert? So we were playing with the idea of scale. So for example, yeah. we open on a really big wide shot of the sea, Kelly returning, and it was the vastness. And our research was saying, sometimes in the midst of psychosis, your sense of boundary between personal and the world starts to disappear. You feel like you belong to everything. Mm. So, you know, Crystal got behind that. We got gorgeous big drone shots. But then when we wanted to create the intimacy of, you know, past coming present, it was all about going in close and getting the detail. And, and even the sound design, we were like trying to record everything so close up that it felt epic in its yeah. intimateness. So there's also there is a fabulous soundtrack by and so Gareth Anton Averill and Matthew James Kelly, who then sometimes refer to themselves as Gareth Averill, and which is kind of confusing. But I saw the film and I, I loved the score. And I couldn't find a soundtrack album, so I, but I managed to track down Gareth online, and he sent a couple of tracks that we played on Scala on Saturday, and they sounded fabulous. How, how big a deal is getting the, the score right? Because you've talked a lot about the soundtrack, and there's the, the way in which the score works with that soundtrack is really important. Again, I did something very similar to the casting. Um, Matt and, uh, and Gareth, I'd, I'd worked with separately. And Matt had this incredible ability to play any instrument on the uh, under the sun, and uh, in incredible with strings. And then Gareth was much more analog and much more kind of experimental. And I thought, what would happen if you put these two together? Yeah. So because it was an experiment, I said, guys, will you come on before we have even picture locked the film? So they were writing music um, in advance of even like assembly. 
uh, and it was amazing because some tracks came out fully formed, like the swimming scene. Yeah. Like Matt just sent that as a demo. And you know, we were like, let's just put that on the swimming scene. We're like, oh my God, that's incredible. And, and then there was other elements of the film where it was really um, a case where they came over to Dublin together. We did a lot of improvised sessions, uh, trying to bring Matt's kind of much more natural sounds with Gareth's kind of more alternative. Um, and it really was a fascinating back and forward, back yeah. and forward. And it, I suppose similar to the acting, like it involves a lot more workshop in time. And it means there's a lot more stuff on the ground. But what I do think you get bringing composers on before picture lock it's all entwined. Like I think the sound design sits so well with the music because it was it was all organically built yeah. together. There's so many composers I know who would absolutely cheer you saying get the composer on as early as possible because the worst circumstances are there we are, that's the thing, now write some music for that. The worst thing there is what happens in those cases is you're sitting in the edit and you start using temp and you get so attached to soundtracks from previous films. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we wanted to abandon that idea and yeah. kind of just find it right from the start. Wildfire has been very well received. What are you doing now? I am on tour with it. So uh, we're, 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 we've done a week in Ireland and Northern Ireland, and now we're heading into uh, a week in England and Scotland. And then after that, I think um, I'm going to take up pace again on my other project, which is very different. It's a dark comedy set in the Amazon jungle. <laughs> but I will say it's, it's going to be um, built from the ground up in terms of research and okay. potentially working with a writer on that one. Do you have a title? Sanctuary. Fantastic. So five years to make that or? Please God, no. Okay. Well, as I said, Wildfire is in cinemas. If you do get a chance, do go and see it. It's really, really well worth checking out. And at some point, I know there will be a soundtrack album. In the meantime, uh, say thank you to Cathy Brady. Thank you so much. I'm dropping everything at the moment. Um, one of the things that happened... Oh, I'm so sorry. Thank you. But we're going to have another... Oh, it's another chair. Did you do that last time? And I didn't notice. Did you literally come on stage and change a chair and I didn't notice that that had happened? I am really suffering from pre-senile dementia. Okay, fine. Round of applause, please. Thank you. I noticed nothing. Um, one of the things that I did recently, which I was really pleased about, was that I opened Fright Fest. I don't know if any of you have been to Fright Fest. This is a photograph of me opening Fright Fest. This is, Fright Fest is the UK's leading uh, uh, horror film festival. It's absolutely wonderful, organised by the great Alan Jones, amongst others. And uh, it was a real pleasure because we were back in the cinema. We were in the, uh, well, what I was referred to as the Empire, um, in Leicester Square. And it was about, I think, 75% capacity, which was really great. A fantastic selection of films. One of the films that they showed was Censor, uh, which is this brilliant uh, debut feature by uh, Prano Bailey Bond. This is me wearing my uh, Prano Bailey Bond uh, T-shirt. And this is Prano Bailey Bond receiving her Fright Fest Award, wearing her Neve Algar T-shirt. Now, both Prano and Neve had been on the show during lockdown when it was, uh, you know, everything was online. And I said, look, when we get back in the theatres, you know, would you come on? Because I love Censor so much. I am delighted to say that our third guest is the brilliant Prano Bailey Bond.
it was so weird because when we were in the dressing room just before, because because of everything, the way everything is, we hanging out in the dressing room is not really a thing anymore. And you walked in, you said, "Nice to meet you." I I had it in my head that that we had met, but of course yeah. only through Zoom. We've met on Zoom, so I've never seen your legs before now. <laughs> it's is great it, to meet your legs. Is it a crushing disappointment? I've got no, really they're brilliant. I've got really short legs. <laughs> no, no, they're not brilliant. I've got this, this is the thing. Look, this is now since you brought it up. I've got really short legs, right? <laughs> Don't patronise me. I've got really short legs and a really long back. So I've got all these, all these, no, you've touched the nerve. And it's also, also, I'm now bow-legged. Look, couldn't stop a pig in a corridor. I don't know how that's happened. I think they're great legs. Thank you. And they I will, carry you everywhere, so you have to appreciate They them. take me everywhere I go. Yeah. So, Prano, I'm going to show um, a bit from Sensor in a moment, but just to get us in the mood. Sensor, which when I first saw Sensor, I said, it's literally like somebody made a film for me. And I, you know, and I love it, as you know, and I'm, I've seen it three times now, and I'm just a huge fan of it. Just for those who haven't, haven't seen it, what's the setup of Sensor? Sensor is set uh, against the backdrop of the video nasty sort of hysteria of 1980s Britain. And it follows a female film Sensor, played by the wonderful Neve Alga, who one day at work sees a film that takes her back to the day that her sister disappeared when she was a child. And she decides to investigate the director of that film and the journey she goes on kind of blurs the line between fiction and reality. Brilliant. Let's see a clip of Neve Algar in her job as a censor in mid-80s UK in the middle of the video nasty skit. This way. Please stop. I don't like it. Can we go back? No, it'll be fun. Let's play a game. Come on. Summon my shadow. Spin. Do it. One, two, three. Go on. In there. Go.
I love this film. I'm such a I'm such a fan of this film. Um, you're too young to remember the video nasty sketch, surely? Yes, I am. I mean, I I watched some of the video nasties when I was a teenager, but they were probably already like the Evil Dead was past. I think by the yeah. time I watched. Do you know who got the Evil Dead through the BBFC? <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> Oh, we, we finally got it uncut through the. We did. Amazing. Yeah, we've got. We, we, we were the people who got the. Oh wow! Finally through the. Yeah. So no, carry on. No. What year was that? Nineteen ninety something or other. Yes. It was right. basically it was the end of it was the end of Film Four Extreme because we realised that that's it. There wasn't anything else to get through. That was the yeah. un the uncut uncut version. Sorry. Thank you for no, bringing no. that up. It just gave me a chance. To I think I read the file of the censors who would have watched you submitting it and yeah. So. Hooray! Hooray! <laughs> so, but what so? What was your relationship with those films? Because you are a horror fan, right? You, yeah. You're very much into the positive power of horror. Yeah, massively. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of part of what the film is about in lots of ways, even though I think there's a reading of the film that says, you know, some people might watch it and go, oh, well, it's about a censor who watches horror films and does crazy things. <laughs> but if you kind of read the layers and the depth of the film, hopefully you see what I'm really trying to say. But um, which is about the power of horror and uh, I, I suppose the catharsis of horror and what stories and horror are for. Because um, I guess as somebody who's made horror or horror adjacent work throughout my sort of short film and music video career, I'm often asked why horror and so you kind of answer that question on the spot and then you go away and you think, well why do I like this stuff? Because I remember being a kid and watching you know stuff in the living room that was really violent and gory and my mum being like why are you watching this you know and um she questioned it but she never tried to stop me from watching it and i think that my relationship with horror has kind of changed over the years like at first i think it's a thrill when you're a kid and you are watching something that you know isn't real it's fiction so you've got like a safe place to be scared yeah but then over time i think i've used horror to express ideas in a way that i think is more maybe more imaginative and surreal for me than maybe a straight drama might be able to express those ideas i think you can kind of manifest the inner fears of people or societies in the outside world in horror and I find that really exciting in terms of like world building and, and that kind of thing. So. That, the transgression thing is really important because I remember as a kid loving the idea of the X certificate. I've always been, you know, it's a shame it's 18 now because X always sounded so much, you know, so much sort of more, more naughty and more kind of, you know, more, more taboo. And you have this depiction of the census offices which are, you know, like a kind of rabbit warren in the seedy heart of Soho. How did you, because it's a set, isn't it? Obviously, it's, it's not. So how did you get that sense of what it was like to, but you went and spent time at the BBFC? Yeah, I, one of the first places I went with my co-writer, Anthony Fletcher, was the BBFC. And we didn't know if they'd be up for talking to us. We said, we're making a film about a film censor set during the Video Nasties era. Would you be up for talking to us about how you work and what you know about the period? And they were very welcoming, yeah. um, which was, you know, nice and slightly surprising because you never know. So we went there and uh, kind of looked around the place and spoke to them. And also we got to look at files from the period. So mm. any files over, I think, 15 years old, you can access. You can book a time to go in and visit the BBFC. I feel like since I've been doing these 
uh, talks, more and more requests will be going into the BBFC. And <laughs> there'll be all these people going, can I look at, uh, I spit on your grave file, please. <laughs> but um, so we went in and we looked at, I think, I spit on your grave, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Evil Dead, Last House on the Left. I mean, possession, you know, as many as we could. Um, and that was great because you start to get a sense of how they were thinking, but also the different attitudes of the period because they weren't all against the films, funnily enough. No. You think they were, but you look at you know certain files and there's people defending the titles, but also this is a bunch of intellectual, you know, highly educated people discussing like the you know copulation scene in possession <laughs> with the monster, <laughs> um, and so it's kind of funny and strange and sad all at the same time because of what happened during the period. Um, but I also spoke to film censors who worked during the period, um, and that was really interesting. I remember one censor describing the the place as that she was working in. The, she didn't like horror, mm -hmm. and she said she was working in this like underground space. There was no windows, and she was watching what felt like soft porn yeah. all day. And then she'd leave work, and it's night time, and she's walking down an alley, and she'd feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that's you know, the kind of thing that you grab hold of when you're researching because it's such a great description of a space. So then you're trying to kind of funnel that into the set. Yeah. So it was, it was all, you know, it's a basement um, location, the set, even though it wasn't. I mean, we shot in Leeds, so it's, a, it's actually an industrial estate in Pudsey that we turned <laughs> into, <laughs> um, into the census office. You mentioned going through the files and Last House on the left. Uh, again, sorry to make this all about me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm one of the people responsible for messing up the Last House on the left thing was that uh, after a lot of being banned and being banned and being banned, the BBFC had finally agreed to pass it with 16 seconds of cuts. And Blue Dolphin didn't want to accept any cuts, so they asked me to write an, an academic, serious opinion on why it should be released uncut. And I presented this to them. As a result of my opinion, they doubled the cuts. Oh it's actually true. Thank you very much. Never ask. Never ask a film. Thank you. I think it doesn't deserve a round of applause. Um, I want to show a scene um, in the BBFC because one of the things that the film does is, you know, it's eerie and creepy, but it's also loving. I mean, if you are somebody who loves horror films, there's so much in it that's affectionate and, and you know, and it feels like a warm hug in a strange way. There's also this kind of dark comedy, brilliantly, I think, embodied by the great Michael Smiley, who's been a guest on the show here before, and is, is just such a wonderful presence. So this is a scene in the BBFC when Michael Smiley, who is the producer of Frederick North, the director with whom our central character becomes obsessed, and he, he coming through the office and he meets uh, Enid for the first time. This is the great Michael Smiley and uh, Neve Algar in censor. A single malt knife, Fraser. Don't be using that to drown your sorrows. <laughs> and who's this? You've got squirrelled away. Uh, is it Enid Bain? She's uh, one of our censors. So this is Enid. Have we met? No. Doug Smart, producer, Ident Investment Films. Fraser, you didn't tell me of such a photogenic team. Now tell me this, Enid, if you get bored of banning my films, I'm sure I could get you a job on the big screen. I'm not sure how much I like the idea of being raped and cut into pieces on camera. <laughs> no, but I'm sure the public would love it. OK, yeah, come on. Maybe Enid could uh, watch my latest Frederick North submission. 
It's from the archives. It's harmless, I promise. Yeah. I'm sure you could slip me a 15. It's uh, already on her schedule, and I'm sure she'll deal with it with her usual professionalism. Right, come on, Doug, let me see you out. Enchanté, mademoiselle. What a wee cracker she is. Absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> It's, it's so great because, again, it's the balance between the slimy and the threat is, is really... I mean, you know, few people do slimy as well as Michael Smiley. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a really terrific balancing act all the way through. Did you have horror fans in mind? Or did you think at the time, you know, this has to be accessible for a mainstream audience? Whatever that it's is. It's a really good question, actually. Um, I think we were always hoping that the cult you know, audience for Video Nasties would would like the film, but also you've got a censor at the heart of it, so are they going to go with that character because they're yeah. the enemy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we always wanted it to be something that people could come to that didn't have any knowledge of this period, you know, and could enjoy, because ultimately it's a character journey and it's a psychological descent and you're there with Enid and it's about her. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a character study almost first and then the backdrop is an echo of that, or she's an echo of, yeah. of the backdrop and the period. I asked you to choose a film that had inspired you, and you came up rather brilliantly, as it turns out, with a show with, uh, with David Lynch's Blue Velvet, um, which, again, is a very, very divisive film. I'm going to play the opening from Blue Velvet, and then let's talk a little bit about how Blue Velvet affected your work. This is the opening of David Lynch's Blue Velvet. She wore blue was the night softer than satin was the light from the stars she wore blue I love Blue Velvet. The first time I saw it, it freaked me out so much I walked out. I, really? Yeah, didn't make it through the wow. didn't make it through the screening. What is it for you? Oh my God, it's everything. It's like my my favorite film of all time, yeah. and that's never changed. I always thought the more I watched it and the more I studied it, the that it would like wear away. But actually, it's made me love it more. And as I've become a filmmaker, you know, I respect it more and more as well. And you look at that opening, and it is the perfect opening of of a film, in my opinion, because it sums everything up that's going to happen. And also, Lynch is super expressionistic as a filmmaker, but you see that here in so many little details, like, you know, the twisting of the, the hosepipe, you know, and then the heart attack, and what's going on inside him being, again, manifested on the outside. But I kind of always saw this as like, you know, the sort of hypnotized, sleepy American dream the town of Lumberton, everybody's in slow motion, it's all perfect, but underground, there's something deeper and darker. The, the ants, the bugs are all fighting, and there's darkness, and we're going to find out what that is. But the beautiful detail within that as well is that we cut to mum watching the television, and she's watching a crime drama. And crime drama is OK in this world if it's fictionalised, but otherwise, nothing else 
bad exists. Yeah. And I just love that kind of balance in this film. It's all about balance. It's all about the light and the dark and the way those the light exists and ignores the dark and how we discover through each character you know, where the darkness is in them and we discover a character that kind of represents that darkness yeah. for them. Nick, because I want to allow Prana to talk, we're going to jump to the third uh, clip. I'm going to play, this is a clip from later on in the film with, with Dennis Hopper in a car with Kyle MacLachlan and this central motif of him singing or, you know, watching the, the, the performance of Roy Orbison's In Dreams. I still think that Dennis Hopper's performance in this film is one of the scariest things yeah. I have ever seen. Here we go. There's a story that uh, they were having dinner when they were getting the film together and Dennis Hopper rang uh, David Lynch and he said, I'll, I am Frank. Yeah. And, Dennis, and uh, David Lynch went back to the cast and said, the good news is, Dennis Hopper says, I am Frank, he'll do it. The bad news is, how the hell are we going to work with him if he is Frank? <laughs> what is it about that character that works for you? I think he is what his name is. He's Frank. Frank. You know, he's one of the only emotionally honest characters in the film. But he, within that, it's terrifying. You know, everybody else is so repressed and neat and tidy, and Frank is this kind of emotional explosion. I think I kind of watched. There's the the scene with him and Dorothy, um, where he, you know, comes in and says, "It's Daddy shithead," and um, it's really horrible. To really watch, horrible. Really horrible. But it makes me think about who Frank is and where he's come from and what creates a character like this and the fact that he calls himself daddy and her mummy and is this sort of a long line of abuse and you know i've got lots of deep thoughts about about frank but he's ultimately i think in the film because jeffrey is our protagonist yeah. he's jeffrey's shadow self you know and at one point he says to jeffrey you're like me and that is the most terrifying thing for jeffrey to hear and then jeffrey does beat dorothy and you know so it's this whole um, story about somebody exploring their dark side and Frank represents the worst person I think that Jeffrey could be. You know that um, apparently on set because David Lynch doesn't ever like to swear but this you know this story that they would they would show him the script and they would go David uh, how do I say this word? <laughs> Which word? This word here David how do I? There is something about that about Lynch himself that yeah. the fact that in person he's so like you know he, he is Jimmy Stewart from Mars and yet this stuff comes out of his head. Yeah, I know, but he's this, 
incredible creator. I have so much respect for him. He's like, he talks about filmmaking in a way that I find really helpful as well as a filmmaker because he's kind of, he says things like, it doesn't have to be a struggle to create. And um, the way he describes process, I've always found really kind of helpful. And he's got this, I'm not massively spiritual or anything, but he's, you know, he's got, I, I don't know, I think if I was gonna join a cult, it would be the, the cult of David Lynch. <laughs> 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 Definitely. How do you feel about the response to Censor? It's been getting really great reviews and uh, I, I'm so delighted that you won the Fright Fest prize because that must have been lovely because that's kind of, that's coming home, isn't it? Yeah, no, and Fright Fest and that kind of community have been really supportive around the film. So it's been amazing. It's been a weird journey, you know, similar to Wildfire in that, um, sorry to herself actually probably and Wildfire, that, you know, we we launched at Sundance this year in January and it was a virtual Sundance. So recently I've just completed the UK tour and that's been the first time I've met audiences and seen the film with audiences. And it's been amazing because you know, doing everything via Zoom isn't the same, and seeing yeah. it in the cinema is, you know, that's the place we intended it to be seen. You know, you make a film and you shoot it on 35 millimeter and you spend that much time, you know, putting that detail into the sound design and, and the music for that to be a kind of cinematic experience. Yeah. So knowing that people are there in the cinema experiencing like, it like that has been great, and the response has been a little bit surreal and I'm still processing it all to be honest. Well it is one of my favourite films of the year by you know it, it'll, it, it, I, it just knocked me out and I said I've seen it three times I absolutely love it if you haven't had a chance yet go to the cinema to see Censor because it is such a great work of art please join me in thanking the great Prana Bailey Bond thank you so much thank you Okay, we're going to draw things to a close. We're going to end with a sound and vision thing, as we always do. Has any of you seen Summer of Soul yet? Yeah. Summer of Soul is the most brilliant thing. It's now, it's, I think it's on Disney now. It was in cinemas very briefly. This rediscovered footage of the most incredible uh, Harlem Cultural Festival. Here is just a few moments of absolutely barnstorming musical bliss from the joy that is Summer of Soul. <laughs> I love I love that film so much. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet, please do. Look, it's been wonderful to be uh, back in the theatre with you. Know, get, we're getting closer to being able to uh, to have everybody back. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, our guests, Harriet, Kathy, and Prano. <laughs> Thanks, as always, to Nick, Hedda, and Heather, who is here as well. 
And, and a, a particular word of thanks to Duncan, who, Duncan is a filmmaker, but because um, Julie, our usual photographer, can't be here, Duncan had just leapt in, so he's doing the photograph. So, round of applause for Duncan. Uh, thank you for coming. This is, a, this is an exciting week. There's some news coming on Wednesday, which I can't tell you about. Can I? No. No. Okay, thanks ever so much, everybody. Thank you. I can only do... He's working me with his foot. I can't go... Honestly, it's like, you know... Uh, thanks ever so much to the BFI for having us back. It's wonderful to be back here at the BFI South Bank. God bless you all. Masks on as you leave. Thank you. Stay safe. Take care. Well, there we are. That was MK3D live back where it belongs at the BFI South Bank. If you like the sound of the show and you think you might want to come along, then check out the BFI website. Tickets do sell out pretty fast. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, stay safe, keep watching the skies. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.